Welcome to Tiger Paw Radio, the podcast that tackles all the challenges and opportunities of channel convergence. If you provide managed IT, managed print, VoIP, security, or other technology-driven services for your customers, this podcast is for you. Tiger Paw Radio, exploring channel convergence, one stripe at a time. Well, hey, everybody, Wes McDonald here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of TigerTube. And if you can't see us, that means you're listening to us on Tiger Paw Radio, and I want to thank you for listening in. Yeah. And Paul, I'm, I'm so excited to get you on today because one of the things that we were talking about when we were setting up this podcast is this idea of uh, companies, especially right now, looking at building value in their company, looking at their valuations. And I think importantly, uh, to start looking at their companies, no matter what stage they're at, and building them to sell, even if they're not. I'm just so really excited to have you online. But as is my habit, I don't really like to fully introduce the guest. I'd Uh-oh. like you to I'd like to I'd like to have you introduce yourself. And if you could oh, sure. make sure you add one interesting thing about yourself that people may not know. Oh, okay. Well, Wes, first off, thanks very much for the invitation to share my journey and my experience with your audience, and I hope they find it both valuable and and at least a little bit interesting. Um, I've been in the telecommunications, specifically the mobile messaging aspects of the telecommunications business for a little over 24 years. This was in Silicon Valley. We were based in San Jose. We were one of the first seven GSM operators that were launched in North America. And uh, as a result of that broad experience, but also the very narrow experience in the context of being in Silicon Valley, I was able to get into that mix, that vibe, that culture of looking for new opportunities and, uh, you know, developing a, um, a soft spot for renegades, pirates, mavericks, and rascals, if you will. <laughs> uh, and I jumped from being in a large Fortune 100 uh, multi-billion dollar entity company, which is now known as AT&T Wireless, and jumped into a startup. And that startup became uh, phenomenally successful. Uh, within five years, we sold it. it. wasn't our intent to be able to position it to be sold, but five years later, and we sold the company for a little over half, almost $500 million, around four seventy-two. Uh, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to meet um, five U.S. presidents and five U.S. vice presidents. Just for the record, I'll go through the list. So I met Ronald Reagan. I met George Herbert Walker Bush as a result of my running or being involved in his political campaign. Uh, I met Bill Clinton when I was, oddly enough, working for a cabinet secretary who had then was running for vice president. And then I met George W. Bush when I was helping running a uh, an inaugural event uh, for his father. And then uh, I met then Senator Biden. Um, when uh, I was working for Senator John Danforth and Senator Biden's office was down the hall from Mars. And uh, this was on a late August afternoon. And August back then was uh, on Capitol Hill. It just dries up. There are no people. And here we're playing catch. And all of a sudden, one of the doors opens up, which is the hideaway door, meaning a direct access to a senator's office. And out comes Joe Biden. He's looking at us, you know, and we're thinking, oh, we're screwed. This is it. <laughs> You know, <laughs> any aspirations that we might have had are now done. And he looks at us and goes, throw it here. Absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, one interesting <laughs> fact, having met one president, I would have exceeded my wildest expectations. That is so cool. Yeah, of all those, it. the last, uh, Reagan was the one that I spent the least amount of time. 
And then, oddly enough, Clinton and uh, George W. Bush probably the most amount of time. What an incredible experience to think, you know, from early on in your career uh, in politics and then moving into what became one of the largest telecommunication companies in history to then moving into startups and building a startup to sell for half a you know, billion dollars and then on to helping other people do the same thing. It's, it's absolutely incredible, right? Yeah, and, I can't keep a job and I can't keep focused on the same industry. That's well, probably what that's it reflects. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, but what I want to move to now is maybe just talk a bit is that, you know, obviously with your expertise, you can help startups to grow their valuations um, to, you know, to points that maybe some companies didn't really think possible. But in our space, when we're looking at technology companies, um, oftentimes starting on shoestring budgets or, you know, as a favor to a friend because they needed some technical help or anything else, um, you know, what, what kind of ideas do you have uh, to share with them to say, why should they be thinking about building their business to sell even if they're not? And this concept is, I'm seeing it more and more, right? That this idea of um, even if you're not selling something to build it as if you are. And in my mind, at least, that is the startup world, right? When you're building a startup. Absolutely, sure. So maybe share a little uh, with our audience about how you feel about that. Well, the premise, you know, keep in mind, this reflects my own personal journey and the the places that I landed as a result of, of being where I was and then moving to the next opportunity. Um, as I mentioned, we were in a emerging technology that at that time was text messaging at the early stages. We're talking about 1999, uh, 2000, 2001 timeframe. I had been involved in text messaging inside a mobile network operator. So I had already a pretty good sense of what messaging was all about, both on a voice side as well as text side. Landed in this startup and it was presented to me by a venture capitalist. And he said, you know, I think they're missing the fact that they're just focusing on the domestic U.S. market. The premise essentially is that a text message could be sent from what is now T-Mobile US, it used to be called VoiceStream back then, to Verizon. And Verizon back then didn't even have the means to process um, SMS because SMS was native to the GSM radio format. Now we're getting into too much technology here, but the reality is that it didn't exist. And we came to Verizon saying, we have a solution that is going to be able to offer a greenfield play for you to be able to get into this game. And here's why this is important. So if you look at what's going on in the, Scandi or the Nordic countries right now in Scandinavia, there's this thing called text messaging that's really starting to take off. We think that this is going to be a much more global phenomenon. We being not just guys who are pirates and rascals and renegades, but guys who'd been inside, men and women who had been inside mobile operators going, yeah, well, we already see this trend developing. It's just a matter of time. Now, did we think it was going to be at that scale that it eventually became? No, of course not. You know, something as historical and culturally impacting as text messaging? Not at all. But we also knew that 160 characters was very glimpseable. We had already seen places like in the Philippines and elsewhere, at least I had, that uh, was showing that people were sending upwards of 100 text messages a day, which was phenomenal in 2001, 2002, to think that people are spending that much time on a mobile phone sending text messages? Really? And that much yeah. money, by the way, because I can Act, remember the yes. early days. <laughs> and even even and, and the way that people avoided paying money, especially in some of the developing economies, was also quite remarkable. And so I came in and, and again, because of my international perspective, 
um, inside a mobile network operator. It was most of the time I was traveling, to be honest, um, meeting with the other mobile network operators. I saw a global perspective or gained a global perspective. My perspective when I came to talking to the board and the member, the founders was you need to go global from the start. Um, you can't really think about this as a domestic U.S. opportunity. You got to think about how the rest of the world is going to want to access the U.S. marketplace. And the board agreed. Um, and uh, they were like, sure, okay, what's it going to take? How much time and money? And my perspective there was, well, you know, the reality is that the market is up for grabs. So the risk isn't inefficiency here. The risk is playing it too safe. And if you, and now since then, I mean, this is in 2002, 2001 timeframe, um, there's an entire canon around these kind of things. So, you know, minimally viable product. Reed Hoffman has written a great book called Blitzscaling, you know, which I'm going to echo in much of my comments. But these things were things I kind of discovered and pursued, and then others were able to leverage it to a much higher level and then start writing books about it. Um, but you know that doesn't take away from their vision, which was if, if you win, efficiency isn't important, okay? If you lose, efficiency is completely irrelevant. <laughs> and our perspective, uh, I, when I first moved into my office, I put up a, a sign which was global domination. That was the objective, pure and simple. So that's, that's the, the direction, um, the piece of wisdom that I would provide to your listeners. And then I would probably back that up with, um, you know, when you blitz scale, you deliberately make decisions and commit to them, even though your confidence level is, in, is maybe substantially lower than 100%. So if you're playing... Uh, you know, the game of, well, let's do, let's define, which is the traditional startup mentality of let's define either what the market terrain looks like, or let's define what we do and then make the investments in that. And then we are very focused on going from zero to one, the minimal viable product. And, you know, Eric Reese is, is spot on in all that. I'm not taking anything away from that, but the reality is that you really want to move from one to a billion and you want to move it fast. And you start looking at the opportunities. And again, in my space, one of the things that is an advantage of being in my space is the reality of network effects. And so by um, even with the mindset, there's my business this is something that we've used for many, many years It's called Metcalf's Law. And Metcalf's law is um, essentially a reflection that the value of a network increases geometrically with the additional of each the addition of each node. So every time I would be signing up a new network operator who is going to be part of our network, and we started off with five, and then fifty, and then twenty-five, and five years on, we were up to one hundred and seventy-five. Now that's not bad out of eleven 1 hundred operators because. Just like everything else, there's this 80-20 rule. 20% of the world's operators are generating 80% of the traffic. And we had focused on what were those 20 for whatever, you know, we for whatever reason in terms of our initial opportunities. So we then pursued that, you know, with vigor, as they would say. <laughs> and that was the mentality, you know, and um, 
there weren't questions that came from the board as to what do you mean you're going to spend two hundred thousand dollars on travel this year it was okay um yeah we see what you're doing and this is essentially uh, an operating gain and you know even when i described all of this as part of the strategy to the board i was laying out uh, the reality that it's both offense and defense at the same time because when you engage in this kind of blitz scaling or going global from the start um, you take the market by surprise and this was an opportunity um, this type of technology was something that was a greenfield play as i said there was no such thing as messaging interoperability now wasn't we were the only guys who were doing this you know the nature of technology usually isn't unitary it's not one person that emerges it's usually a bunch of them green shoots develop and they're all kind of similar but they may be a little bit different and then there's that traction that occurs that i mentioned going from zero to one but we decided okay we wanted to play the game faster rate we set the pace um, we then were able to leverage our lead to build long-term competitive advantages which is exactly what you were talking about as to how do you position yourself for the sale? Well, we didn't think of that. We thought of a sale as a liquidity event. And the liquidity event could be an IPO or it could be bought. We could be bought by somebody because we were a fast growing, sexy little company and um, we had a different vision. And when we, when I even, when I presented all this to the board in terms of our strategy, I did discuss the reality of this would be accretive. That, again, back to Metcalf's law, the power of our network that we will build out will give us an advantage, uh, not only in terms of serving our customers, i.e. those mobile network operators, but also creating a moat from others being able to take advantage of it. And in many cases, I had the other aspect of this business is that it's collaborative and cooperative at the same time. Because as I mentioned, there are 1100 operators and you, the way the business was for the first three years, we were all getting our own beachheads. And some of us were getting beachheads offshore. So we had more beachheads than the other guys. But at the end of the day, there were certain beachheads that I couldn't get to and there's certain beachheads my competitor couldn't get to. So we had to cooperate to be able to say, yeah, okay, you're serving um, AT&T at the moment. We're serving Verizon. I can get you messages into Verizon. You'll have to send them directly to us. If you go to Verizon, they're just going to go, we want you to talk to Infomatch first because they're essentially our agent. And the same thing, if I had wanted to talk to AT&T at the time, AT&T would have said, well, you need to talk to MobileSpring, who is managing the same type of service. So that, that aspect became uh, another differentiator in the game. Um, and then the last piece in all this, as we discovered, as you are establishing that leadership role, you get more interest from investors because they like to invest in leaders. Uh, and that became another dynamic as, and others, you know, companies came to look and look at us and we weren't thinking about selling, but eventually, you know, somebody came with a very interesting offer, a smart guy named John Chen, who was at the time, the founder and CEO of Sybase, which was an enterprise resource planning and customer relationship management company. And his vision was, I think I can utilize text messaging in our software platform. 
and you guys could be providing that to me. And that was the aha phenomenon, you know, even the sphincter phenomenon as to, damn, why didn't we think of that? You know, <laughs> I, I love it. And, you know, I've heard a few things here and I just want to, you know, make sure I'm on the right track. But I think most companies are capable of doing that zero to one. It's kind of like, you know, figuring out if you actually have something right. And it's like, yeah, it looks like, you know, we're obviously doing something right. But that acceleration, that leadership that you're talking about, th that's the, the part that I think most companies miss, right? And if, yeah. if I'm correct, that's what you're saying is they've got to really focus on that acceleration, that leadership. And in the end, when people see that leadership in the marketplace, that also drives uh, value in the company, right? That's right. Um, part of my training as a political operative and political manager was uh, listening to a lot of military strategy because it's just part of campaigning. And so I went through a program um, that brought in military strategists, et cetera, and how you apply military campaigning and war fighting in the same context as running political campaigns. Well, guess what? The same thing can be applied to marketing and, and the private sector, okay? And um, that dynamic was driven by, I remember a mantra that I started to really em embrace, which was uh, shoot, run, maneuver, meaning take the shot, move to another position, and then start thinking about where you need to go next. Repeat, 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 which came from guerrilla warfare fighting. Um, so it's the same concept of if you think, if you're looking at this as an incremental play, then you may be doing this for a very long period of time. Um, if you want to be looking at this in a different fashion, you've got to be able to run, shoot, and maneuver, you know, shoot, run, and maneuver, or pivot, constantly pivoting. Um, so, you know, and then also even in the context of shorter timescales, uh, I looked at, you know, when I was first tasked with segmenting the marketplace, as I mentioned, at the time, there were 1,100 mobile network operators out there. And um, one of the board members like, well, how are you going to attack this market, especially since it's just you at first? So what I did was essentially segmented out in terms of the dynamics of the American market and the offshore market and who, you know, and this was an easy thing for a telco guy to do because all I did was look at long distance voice calling and the distribution of voice calls all around the world because I knew that messaging was going to mirror that distribution of traffic all around the world and then be able to go to the next level down as to which operators are getting most of this business. And at that time, it was, you know, enterprise-related business, meaning road warriors, business guys who were doing this. And so it was an easy thing to be able to segment and then brought to the table as to um, I'm going to engage in what I called parallel priorities, which is complete misnomer. I mean, there's no such thing as parallel priorities. There are priorities. They're not <laughs> a whole bunch of priorities. But my perspective was the pivot aspect so that I looked at that 1,100, condensed it down to 125, then condensed it down to another 25, and then engaged those 25. And then if need be, I killed my children. And what I mean by that is I started looking and if I got traction with, let's say, T-Mobile UK, versus Vodafone, which was exactly the phenomenon, um, I discarded 
Vodafone as a priority. And then I pivoted my resources, meaning my time, my money, my people, my talent, even the technology to land that first beachhead opportunity, which was T-Mobile UK, which is exactly what we did. That took six months. Vodafone took two and a half years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it strikes me what you're saying. I've heard, I've heard a similar kind of approach in um, sort of customer management, right? The ABC model where mm-hmm. obviously you groom your A customers, you're, um, you know, do everything you can to keep them happy. Your B customers, you're grooming them to become, you know, those A customers and your C customers, you're chopping them out, right? So it sounds like the kinds of uh, relationships and partnerships and strategy go after you have to have that same pivot mindset, which is don't be afraid to cut the chafe, right? Exactly. You know, and you touched about partnerships as well, again, because I started applying the things that I, lessons I had learned in the political world back to the partnerships, which in the political world, in the policy world, you're talking about coalition development, you know, coalescing people that may have divergent opinions, but getting them marshaled around the common goal and common objective. And so we did the same kind of thing. So I started looking at the suppliers of the company that I was involved in. And most of what we did, we didn't create it ourselves. We were essentially building a stack of functionality, wrapping it all together and going to market with it with these various partners. Well, I had already known that those various partners were oftentimes suppliers of services or technical solutions to mobile network operators. So I started to try to influence the influencers, go to them directly and say, look, I'd like to have this intro in terms of referral. Here's what the opportunity is. Here's where we're going. And that's how we opened additional doors and we're able to pick up our pace and close more deals. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think, you know, our listeners can really, you know, grab from that when you have these parallels, which you know, things they may recognize uh, from the outside world and politics and military, such as coalitions, and how important those partnerships are, right? And, and and I love what you said earlier. I think that, you know, we really do have to do, actually, maybe it's a segue into my next question, because I was thinking that when you're a startup uh, and you work with them and tell them, hey, look, you're going to go to zero to one, and then we're going to go from one to, you know, a billion in a hurry, well, they don't have any legacy, right? Um a lot of people watching this have been in business for a long time already. They've already, mm-hmm. you know, had slow growth or maybe they're not growing the way that they want to. What advice might you have for them to start, you know, behaving like a startup even if they've been in business for a long time? That's, you know, the the toughest thing as a consultant that I've been involved in and I've done probably over 100 different consultancies over the last like 15 years or so. Um the reality is manifesting that change is, is clearly the most difficult thing to do. Ideas are great, but execution is everything. And so it becomes a matter of how can we do this in parallel? You know, there's a great book by a Harvard Business School professor named Clayton Christensen called The um, Innovator's Dilemma. And it talks about companies that focus on the performance engine exclusively, meaning companies that are legacy players in an environment, and they're attending to how well are we doing as compared to yesterday, to where we want to be tomorrow based on what we've been doing for the last 25 years, or 10 years, or three years, or five years, whatever it might be, you know, in the premise of your question. And they fail to realize that there are adjacent players 
similar technologies who have a little bit more aggressive mindsets who then attack what they've been doing <laughs> and steal the business away. And he wrote a number of different books along this premise. Um, another one's called The Innovator's DNA. Uh, I would recommend it to anybody who's trying to face this at the moment. So it's essentially a guide to be able to think differently, act a differently, because that's really what your premise is. And that's a very difficult thing to do because as human beings, we become quite accustomed to that. Or we're just maniacs who are going from one thing to the next, you know, the serial entrepreneurs, so to speak, that we all run into. Um, and God love them for what they're doing. But it's, you know, if you've got something where you've gotten traction, then it's, do you want to abandon that? Or how can you do both at the same time? You know, another way of accomplishing that is bring somebody in who can help you along. You know, essentially like a consultant or perhaps the right type of talent that has been in that type of environment relative to, let's call it a run and gun startup, so that you can then build upon their experience and their expertise and get there and draw upon their instincts that aren't going to clash with yours. I love that. And it's this idea that um, uh, there's a story, I don't know if it's true, but it's certainly a great urban legend, which is that. Uh, Henry Ford uh, was invited by, you know, journalists who were actually trying to trash him, uh, you know, to sort of illustrate how silly uh, of a person he was and how terrible he was as a businessman. Um, and he set up a schedule and said, sure, come into my, uh, you know, office on this date. And when the reporters came, you know, he made some small talk for about five minutes and, and eventually said, okay, uh, before you ask any questions, just give me one second and opened up the side door and then walked, you know, 10 people, right? Other great minds and people that were helping. And they said, well, that's not fair. We came here to interview you. And his answer, his response was, well, if, if you're here to interview me, you can't do that without talking to these people because I rely on them for, you know, absolutely. For yeah, yeah. You know, there's a great book by a, uh, a guy named Stanley McChrystal, who's a four, uh, a retired four-star general in the United States army who retired at the peak of his career because of issues that he made about uh, President Obama at the time, but you know those things happen. Uh, he was the head of the Special Operations, uh, Special Operations Forces, Special Operations Command for the entire military. So he covered everything from Air Force guys to Green Berets to Navy SEALs, you know, to the helicopter pilots, the whole nine yards. And while he was prosecuting, he was he was responsible for prosecuting the war in both Afghanistan and, and Iraq he put together this concept of teams of teams because every day he had a meeting and his meeting had a thousand people at times involved in it you know he essentially had i think the there were 35 different american intelligence um elements in his efforts and over 70 from the allies especially in afghanistan as well as and what they would be doing is snapshotting the activities of the of um the attacks every night meaning the american attacks looking out for al-qaeda etc every day they were doing this every night there were special operations guys who were engaged in this and he was able to put together a a process and it wasn't him alone, you know, and he wasn't having a thousand people talk for three minutes in this meeting, you know, and he actively, I've, I've listened to him, read his books 
they're really, really good. And it spe- speaks specifically to, you know, you're only good as the team around you. Yeah, I love that because, you know, you said also you can either hire someone to come in uh, or a consultant. You can get someone who has some ex- expertise like you do uh, yeah, to be able yeah. to help them build that roadmap. But it just really opened up my mind in the sense that sometimes it's not, it's not you know, we uh, that have to do the things to change. Sometimes we just actually have to bring in the team that will do that yeah. for us. And, and I'll, 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 I'll speak to this directly again from my own experience. And this isn't to take away from the power, the influence, and the capability of founders. Um, but I'm going to take this again from McChrystal. He's interviewing a guy from Ford who is a former f- CEO of Ford. And I was remember walking, listening to this as a podcast. And the Ford executive, I can't remember his name, but he was the one who was CEO of Ford and then went left Ford and became head of the Michigan um, University system for a little while. And he pointed out that oftentimes founders who are on the edge um, of the commercial activities because they are founders and they are rascals, renegades, etc. Um, they may not follow process very well, but it's really good that they execute quickly. But oftentimes they think they have a unitary perspective, meaning the only perspective of and the greatest perspective and greatest value in a decision-making process. While the guy who might be more of the process commercial large entity background he's going to have a perspective of oh i need to get the best information i can from the best people that i have so they gather all that together and it's not one decision that's being made it's one decision based on multiple decisions that have already been made and that's you know that takes a lot of efficiency that also takes a lot of uh ego busting especially from a founder's perspective um but that's kind of that's uh, that addresses exactly the question and the point that you were being raised. Yeah, step away so you have a better sense of what do I need, and, and that's why you know consultants exist. So, and I got to think that when we're talking about building your business to sell, whether you are or not, that and and correct me if I'm wrong, but but what you speak of when a founder remains the founder and they start building these teams of teams, I, I got to think that somebody buying a company would say. We need to know this machine can run on its own, right? That regardless of who's at the head, that it's built in such a way that what we're buying is is going to be good, right? Is that true or am I missing? Absolutely, it's true. Uh, so, in two, again, from my own experience, I've been in, uh, I've been in the startup that I mentioned that became very successful. Um, within six months of my arrival, uh, it turned out that all three founders had been exited. And the people that were being brought in, including myself, were much more experienced executives in the space. Why was that? Well, they took the VC money and the VC's money was essentially saying, we're going to be changing some things. There were some other circumstances involved as well. You know, no, there's no such thing as uh, pure as the driven snow. Uh, we're all human beings. But the reality was that um, the VCs put a different management team in place which then shepherded its growth and development over the next five and a half years, which eventually led to that, um, that liquidity event. In another environment, I've been involved in a number of different mergers and acquisitions, uh, primarily in larger companies. And one that I was involved in is called Cineverse. And it's very well known that Cineverse has a growth mentality that's based on acquisition. That's their corporate growth thesis. Um, and they do it quickly. 
And in each case, um, I was part of the team that would be doing the rationalization, the due diligence, making those decisions as to who's going to stay, who's going to be leaving, and et cetera. And in almost every case that we acquired a company, and I think I went through four acquisitions, and they were pretty substantial, upwards of um, $720 million on one of them. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, within about a year, the founders or CEO or the management team of that company were gone. And that's part of culture, you know, that, but that's also a matter of that's how they assimilated and rationalized and made the, um, the acquisition accretive as fast as possible. That's just part of it. It's not always yeah. that case, but no. you know, but, but I love this idea that, uh, and I, I've been through an acquisition myself, an organization that I had some interest in myself, was acquired and everything else. And mm -hmm. uh, I was, I guess, an early uh, sort of cog in that wheel and not necessary for the you know, continued growth afterwards, right? Nothing personal. And it just gets me thinking that there are different roles, different people for different stages of growth, right? Yes. And if that's an important way to set up your company for that kind of growth is to keep that in mind, right? That takes, you know, it's really tough for any founder, again, not taking anything away from them. In fact, this is praising them in the context of that's a really tough thing to do, to step back. Um, there's a great course at Harvard Business School that I took called Leadership. And one of the things that I remember from that, that was now 30 years ago, where uh, the professor was like, you need to be able to step outside of yourself like you're watching yourself dance on a dance floor and you're floating above that that disconnects you from all the froth you know the hubris the ego whatever it might be and allows you to make a better decision in terms of being a leader and i was like wow that's really good i'm that you know <laughs> really, a long really time, important. but that's <clears throat> that made a big impression on me yeah, and I, and I think, especially for, like I said, in the technology space with the organizations that I work with on a regular basis, is that there's nothing wrong with uh, being a smaller organization, as some people would call a lifestyle business or, mm -hmm. or something else. But if you do want to grow, that I think um, what I picked up from this at any rate is that that team of teams mentality, that understanding yourself, your role, <clears throat> either as a founder or some other part of that growth strategy, understanding where it is how to pivot and when to get out of the way, right? Yeah, you know, what you, <laughs> forgive me, but you, you've just hit on, so we started talking about, you know, the beginning of this conversation, Chinese New Year, right? Yep. And we've talked a little bit about strategy and we've talked about vision and we've talked about military engagements and military strategy and political strategy. And so, you know, there's a Chinese general from, I think it was 500 BC, so I think his pronunciation is Sun Tzu, yep. Sun Tzu, you know, for those Laois, meaning white guys or, you know, foreigners, as the word translates in from Mandarin, um, S-U-N-T-Z-U for those of us, for those of you listening out there, know thyself, know thy enemy, do not fear a hundred battles. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> we just, how prosaic is that? Yeah. yeah. That's what you're in for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love perfect. it. Yeah. Brings it all around. Well, that's great. And hey, listen, um, I know in respect for uh, obviously yourself and for our audience that we are uh, starting to wind down to the end of the interview here. And, and I would say that I think it's important. Sometimes I like to call this the impossible question. 
Um, <laughs> for for everything that we have, you know, sort of talked about. I, I saw this coming, and I'm still. <laughs> I, I I thought maybe you might, you know, I would get lucky and avoid that. But <laughs> go ahead with your question. You yes, know. <laughs> the the impossible question. If you had just one piece of advice for people to get started on this journey of building their businesses as if they were going to sell them, even if they're not, what would that be? Who dares wins. So who dares wins is the motto of the special air squadron, you know, which is a special forces office element of the, uh, uh, the British air force, the RAF, the Royal air force. So in that same vein of who dares wins, don't hold back. You know, this is a multi answer question to a single part or multi-answer answer to a single part question. Um, don't hold back. Um, be you know, follow your vision and uh, don't hold yourself back. Embrace that opportunity. Go be a global dominator. It's possible. You know, if not you, who? If not now, when? And Paul, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today and for sharing uh, your expertise on uh, strategy and growth with our listeners and viewers. Well, thank you, Wes. I very much enjoyed it. And I hope that your listeners and viewers enjoyed it as well and learned something, had a takeaway from it. Um, it was a delight having the conversation with you. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. Well, that's great. And for everyone out there in Tiger Paw land, remember, keep learning. And so we come to the end of another exciting episode of Tiger Paw Radio. If you'd like to listen to more great learning content to help you grow your business, please be sure to visit www.tigerpaw.com and click on the resources tab. You can also subscribe to your favorite podcast platforms to be sure you never miss another episode. And until next time, keep learning, keep growing, and keep that inner tiger strong.